0: We come this morning to the book of Zechariah, one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. Across all of the Old Testament scriptures, I I don't think there is any other place where the Christ and his gospel are set forth more plainly than in the book of Zechariah. And it's not just my opinion, little interesting trivia fact, did you know that in their accounts of Jesus' Passion Week, The Gospel writers quote Zechariah more than any other Old Testament passages, uh, uh, books. So they, too, believe that it points clearly to Christ and his work. Unfortunately, we cannot take all of Zechariah this morning. In fact, I'm going to ask you now to turn to Zechariah chapter 9. It's not just that it's long. It is 14 chapters but it's because Zechariah has two very distinct divisions. It is a book made up of two very different halves. So much so that scholars will speak of 1st Zechariah and 2nd Zechariah. Chapters 1 through 8 uh, are being very, very different in their content than 9 through 14. And because of those sharp distinctions, it would be hard to unify all of it into one sermon. And so we're going to look at Zechariah 9 through 14. Before we do that, let's uh, turn to the one who wrote this, who inspired Zechariah and seek his guidance in our understanding of it today. Almighty Spirit of God, you alone can unstop our ears and soften our hearts. Please do so now. You alone can guide my words and keep me from error. Please do so now. Let your word fall upon us this morning, and renew in us a vision of King Jesus. Let it be an accurate vision, which bolsters our faith and jumpstarts our praise, all to the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah 9. And I'm going to suggest, even if you're not a note-taker, and and I'm not personally, but even if you're not a note-taker, I'm going to suggest that you have the sermon outline right there next to your Bible, because we're going to move kind of quickly, and that'll help all of us stay together as we go through so much of this text here today. So, Zechariah 9. Real quickly, it's interesting, Zechariah 9 opens with a prophecy about Alexander the Great an earthly king, an earthly ruler of, of of immense historical note. And yet then he transitions immediately into a king who surpasses even Alexander, who is greater even than Alexander. And so we jump in now at uh, uh, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting, I mentioned that the New Testament Gospel writers reference Zechariah frequently, and in fact, two of them quote this very verse in their account of the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. They point to this verse. And Mark, while he doesn't quote this verse, Mark does something interesting. He gives seven verses. Luke gives quite a bit of room also. Mark gives seven verses to Jesus' efforts to acquire a donkey in order to ride into Jerusalem. Now, why do I point that out? Well, Mark is famous for his brevity. If you take all of Mark's verses about the birth of Jesus all of Mark's verses about the baptism of Jesus, all of Mark's verses uh, uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, all of Mark's verses about the resurrection, and you add them all together, they don't match the seven verses that Mark talks about the donkey. Hmm. Why? Because the Gospel writers wanted us to know clearly that Jesus purposefully, intentionally got that donkey and rode into Jerusalem that day so that he would be identified as the king foretold by Zechariah. So before we go any further in the book of Zechariah, we must have it clear in our heads that this is talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that Zechariah is now going to tell us more and more and more about through these final chapters of his book. The coming king of Zechariah 9-9, the promised king of Zechariah 9-9, is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the first trait that Zechariah wants us to know about this king, we pick up immediately in the very next verse. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Ephraim is a, is a part of speech, a metonymy, for the northern half, Israel, of God's people. A Jerusalem is a metonymy, a part of speech, for the southern half of God's people. In other words, all of God's people are in view here. And the church, as the continuation of Israel, of God's people today, is in view here. And what is described? A situation where there would be no need for weapons, no need for chariots or war horses or battle bows. Why not? Because we will not need to defend ourselves. We have a king, the coming king, King Jesus, is a protecting king. And if you study the Old Testament, you realize that's kind of the, the baseline minimum standard of kingship. That's what the king was to do. He was to be the earthly protector of God's people. And here we see that the, the final king, the glorious king, will continue in that mold. You see, King David and all of the other kings were models, were examples, were prototypes, were uh, uh, images of what the true king would be like, a king who protects from the, the powers out there that would attack the people of God. Jump down to verse uh, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says there, My anger is hot against the shepherds, And I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. So what we see here is Jesus, King Jesus, protecting his people from internal enemies, from those among his people who lead them falsely, who are false teachers and preachers. Now, let's let's be clear, we're not talking about a teacher or a preacher who occasionally gets something wrong. Every earthly, merely earthly, every merely human teacher and preacher is going to get things wrong. But this is talking about those shepherds of God's people who continually, routinely mislead the flock. and and mistreat and misguide the flock. And then we see in verse 4 how how God is going to replace them. He's going to provide the cornerstone and the other righteous leaders that his people need. You know, when you take this uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, and you put it together, it kind of reminds me of the oath that military officers take. Part of that oath is to that they promise to defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic. That's what we have here. King Jesus will defend his people against all enemies foreign and domestic. 9.10, against the enemies out there who are trying to attack in here. 10.3 and 4, against those in here who are enemies of the gospel and of the truth of Jesus Christ. And this king, this protecting king, will protect his people from both the outside attacks and the inward corruption. King Jesus protects us from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, when you hear that a king is coming, and you hear this king is going to be a protecting king, you might anticipate that it's going to be a celebrated king. A king about whom everybody is excited If there was ever going to be a candidate who would get all the votes, who would win in a landslide, it would be one who promises these things. But this is part of the reason for prophecy. For you see, there is so much in the way that God uh, 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 unfolds history that some of it is unexpected and we have to be told about it. So skip down now to chapter 11, verses 7-7. Through 13. I probably won't read actually all those verses, but chapter 11, verses 7 through 13. For we find that this king, this coming king, this protecting king, is a rejected king. Starting in verse 7. <clears throat> so I, and this is uh, Zechariah talking about an interesting incident in his life. He says, so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, one I named favor, the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds. These are among those uh, evil false shepherds that we've been told about. Zechariah puts an end to their reign of terror. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested Me, this seems to be all the people, not just those shepherds. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. Skipping down to verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. Now listen closely to this wording here. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You hear the verbiage here? You hear the language here? It should uh, 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 make us think of Judas. You know, it's interesting, those 30 pieces of silver in Judas's betrayal... That's a story, that's, a, that's something that's known even among the unchurched. Those who have really no familiar, familiarity with the Bible, they're aware of the story of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so when we read this, we hearken to that. And uh, we should know. Matthew even points out, Matthew 27.5 even points out how Judas took his 30 pieces of silver, went back to the priest, and they wouldn't take it back from him, so he threw it into the temple, and on the ground in the temple, just like Zechariah does here. And so what we have here is a picture of how this good shepherd, Zechariah, in his time, was rejected by God's people. And he was paid off to get out of the way with 30 pieces of silver. The New Testament writers pick up on this and they show us how the ultimate good shepherd was himself rejected and was also rejected at the price of 30 pieces of silver. We have here a picture of the coming rejection of King Jesus. We need to be reminded of these things. We need to recognize that even the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a good news that will be rejected by many, many people. If we don't remember that, we might think there's something wrong with the message. We might think there's, we need to tweak it, we need to twist it, we need to change it so that it'll be more acceptable. It is a, a message that is rejected by many. He is a king rejected by many. Zachariah tells us the coming king will be identifiable by the donkey on which he rides, and the New Testament points that out as being Jesus. He will be a protecting king, but he will be a rejected king. And clearly we see that in Jesus. So the picture of Jesus is unfolding here in the book of Zechariah in chapters 9 through 14. And we continue now in chapter 12 and we see another aspect of this coming king. Picking up in verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7 This king will be a saving king. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Salvation is promised, and there is a description of the accompanying glory of that salvation. A glory that is such that it, it's compared to the glory of God Himself, that those whom God saves will be made glorious. Glorious. That is part of what Paul reminds us of in in Romans chapter 8. That those whom God has foreknown, he will call. And those whom he calls, he will justify. And those whom he justifies, he will glorify. Now, we could do a whole sermon just on future glorification. But rather, we're going to look what comes next. Notice the very next verse. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and we bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It's interesting the juxtaposition of these things: glory put right up against the piercing of the promised one. This is something prophets, uh, prophets, scholars refer to as as a, a prophetic perspective. Uh, so I've also seen it called prophetic uh, prophetic foreshortening, prophetic perspective. Let me try to illustrate this. It is the idea that when the prophet looks out by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the prophet looks out into the future, the prophet sees certain events, but because of his perspective, it's like standing in a mountain range and seeing this peak and that peak, but not being able to see the huge valley in between them, and thinking the peaks are right next to each other. That's prophetic perspective, and we see it a lot. We saw in Joel how, how the day of the Lord was begun to be fulfilled at Pentecost, and yet there was this aspect in the very next verse of Joel chapter 2, stuff that's still way out in our future today. Right together in Joel, widely separated in human history. We have that here. We have a picture of great glory and a picture of the one who is pierced. We now have the benefit of the hindsight standing where we do and looking back at the cross. And we recognize that the rejection of King Jesus led to the piercing of King Jesus. And by the inspiration and leading of the apostles and the New Testament writers, we see that it was that very piercing which provided the avenue by which glorification was possible. Salvation was possible. The rejected king became the pierced king and thus could be the saving king. D- events, that future glorification and that piercing are widely separated in human history, but here Zachariah sees them as two peaks in a range right up against each other. We must recognize that the rejection foretold in 11 led to the piercing talked about in 12 making possible the salvation promised there in chapter 12. The protecting king was the rejected king. The rejected king was the pierced king. The pierced king is the saving king. Now, saving, if we're not careful with that word, saving isn't all that it might seem to be. It might not be all that it's cracked up to be. You understand the difference between saving and saving. I had a friend in high school because of this world of social media, I will refrain from using his name. But I had a friend in high school who had saved quite a few old Volkswagens. He had a couple of classic Volkswagen Beetles, one of them a convertible. He had two Volkswagen Carmen Ghias, kind of the forerunner of the Porsche, modern Porsche, really a cool car. One of those was a convertible. Neat collection of classic cars. But they were saved in a barn, and no care was given to them. They were rusting, they were falling apart, there were critters living in them, uh, the barn was leaking on them. They were saved, but they weren't particularly desirable. Zechariah goes on to show us how our salvation is not merely being saved in a leaky, old, rat-infested barn. We're going to be saved for something better. Look at Zechariah 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Perhaps you are thinking of the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That hymn is rooted right here. Let's keep reading. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the, the, the false prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. <clears throat> Moving down to verse seven. Move down to verse seven. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say... The Lord, Yahweh, is my God. Again, we are we see another passage of, of, of Zechariah and another quote in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes this passage right here and says that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. Jesus sees this as applying to him and talking about him. And again, we see here the need for prophecy to to warn us about the unexpected. When we're told that the shepherd king is going to save us, and when we're told that he is going to purify us, we might not expect the method. I think one of the things that the church has done badly over the last 50 years is to tell Christians that everything in this life is going to be hunky-dory when you come to Jesus. We have created this expectation that the promises of Jesus are all fulfilled in this life. But the prophet Zechariah warns us that this life may involve some refining and refining as by fire. The process of our purification, the process of our sanctification, is neither easy nor pleasant all the time. It is a difficult, difficult process. It could involve things like global pandemics, unemployment, challenges in our relationships, challenges in our church, challenges in our workplace. Some of those challenges will be God's temporal punishment on your sin. Some of those challenges will be Job-like opportunities for God to be glorified. But some of those challenges will be for your and my refinement. The purification that is told here in Zechariah 13 is a purification that can and often does come as if. By fire. And yet, what do we see? It wipes away idolatry. It takes away false preaching. It purifies the spirit of uncleanness. It is used by God to make us more like Jesus. One of the things the king does is purify us so that we are not merely rusty old cars sitting in a barn being saved. We are restored, renewed, made into what we were always supposed to be. Oh, yes, in the short run, it can be sometimes easier to just sit in that barn and rust. But that's not why cars were made. Neither were we made to decay under the weight of sin. This is why Paul could rejoice and say, I give thanks in all circumstances. For even in the difficulty, he realized the hand of God at work in his life, refining him. During difficult times, let one of your prayers be, Lord, show me what I'm to learn. Show me what I'm, what you're working on in me. Show me what you want changed. And let me Do so willingly under your refining fire. The king is coming, Zechariah tells us. He is a king who will defend us against all enemies foreign and domestic. He will protect us. He will be rejected. and He will save by virtue of being pierced. And he will purify sometimes as by fire. But now Zechariah turns his attention to, I don't know how else to word it, I'm going to say the more kingly aspects of the king. Those things that we more readily associate with majesty and royalty. We look now in Zechariah 14 at some of the final comments this prophet makes about the coming king. He is a fearsome king. Look at Zechariah 14, verses Three, four, and five. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when He fights on a day of battle. Boy, I'd love to talk about this in some detail, but I cannot this morning. But it is interesting to word notice how that's worded there for all the efforts that mankind has made to fight over the centuries, for all the, the, the different ways that people have attacked Christianity and attacked the Lord's church and attacked the Lord's word, there is coming a day when he is going to show us all how it's done. You want to know how to fight? This is how a fight is conducted. There is coming a day when the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled on the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now listen to this. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. That phrase, holy ones, actually occurs far more often than you might realize in your New Testament. But when it shows up in the New Testament, it is usually not translated this way. It's usually translated as the word saints. When the epistles of Paul are written to all the saints in Philippi. It is holy ones. All the holy ones in Philippi. Notice what's going on here. The day of the Lord that began with the earthly ministry of Jesus, with King Jesus being proclaimed, will one day conclude again on the earth with the fearsome coming of that king. He came the first time in a way that could be missed if you wanted to. You could close your eyes and pretend that he wasn't there. You could say, oh yeah, so he rode a a donkey into Jerusalem, what's the big deal? Anybody could have done that and pretended they were fulfilling Zechariah. But when he comes the second time, he will come in a way that is so fearsome, that is so awesome, that is so powerful that it cannot be missed. There is no closing your eyes to a brilliance that bright, for it will penetrate those eyelids. There is no hiding from one that fearsome, for he will split open the mountains themselves. What cave is safe under those conditions? And yet, it's not a fearsome day for you and for me. As many of you know, our son Caleb is a tanker in the army. And a tank is a fearsome instrument of war. 72 tons of steel, capable of top speeds in the order of 50 miles an hour. 72 tons, 50 miles an hour. That's crazy. Unbelievable firepower. It is a terrifying vehicle of war if you're on the ground outside the tank. But I'll tell you what, when her little boy came and said, Mom, I'm joining the army and I'm going to be in a tank, Becky was pretty excited about that. You've got to go into battle. Being in a tank's a pretty great place to be. It's fearsome if you're on the wrong side of it. It's great comfort and protection if you are in it. The coming King Jesus is not fearsome for those who are in Christ, for those who are in him. They come with him, Zechariah says. It is a picture we see in the book of Thessalonians, that Christ's second coming, the saints will be gathered with him and meet him in the air and turn right around and accompany him. It is the picture of of the way royalty was uh, welcomed into a city. As an ancient king, I mentioned Alexander earlier. Alexander is an example of this. As any ancient king would, would come to a, a city, not in war, but in a visit, the officials, the, the high-ranking people of that city, would go out and meet him outside the city and form an entourage, form a, a, a parade, to honor and glorify this visiting king. And that's the picture Zechariah has here for us. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ by faith are going to accompany this fearsome return. Celebrate it, rejoice in it, and be uh, uh, comforted by it. Look at verses 9 through 11. And again, I may not read all of it. This king that comes, this fearsome king, is a victorious king. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. In the interest of time, I'll I'll let you read the other verses later. Let me just comment on what this is saying right here. His name shall, the Lord will be one and his name one. What's going on there? Well, Did you notice in our psalm this morning, our call to worship, that it makes references to other gods? As if there are other gods. We have to be careful how we handle this. In one sense, there are other gods. Whatever you idolize, whatever you look to for security, whatever you turn to in your difficult times, including your bank account, be careful there, is for you a god. So in one sense, there are other gods. But there is coming a day when even the sense of other gods will be driven out of everyone's mind. There is coming a day when there will be only one name named when anybody thinks about God. On this day, no one will dare say, what about Allah? Is he not also a God? No one will dare say, what about uh, Shiva? Is she not also a God? These things will... I think Shiva's a he. Sorry about that. Um, These things will also be driven out of everyone's mind. The deity of Christ will be so clear... His rule over the world so absolute that there will no longer even be the thought of another god being named. On that day, the Lord will be the only and his name the only one. He is a victorious king. He will rule over all the earth in power and absolute authority. If there are no other gods to be named, if there's coming a time when no one will even consider the possibility of another god, then what does that leave us with? It leaves us with a scenario where the only one that anyone will worship is King Jesus. And that is how Zechariah closes out. His prophecy, looking at the end of Zechariah 14, starting in verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. Quick pause there. You may have noticed how through many of these chapters we haven't actually seen the word king, but Zechariah now creates a—it's called an inclusio. He has opened with the word king back in nine nine. He is now closing out with the word king, and it's a set of it's, it's literary bookends to tell you that everything that goes in between here is about this king he says, on that day, all who survive shall go up to Jerusalem year after year to worship the king. Moving down to verse 20. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. What is this about? If you are not conversant in Old Testament literature, and certainly can be forgiven if you are not, but but work on that. If you're not conversant in Old Testament literature, let me tell you, this phrase, holy to the Lord, was what was engraved on the gold plate that sat on the headpiece of the high priest. So that when the high priest got all, uh, 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 got all his vestments, all of his robes, all of his garments, all of his jewels, got ready to go into the temple on the Day of Atonement, on Yom, K- Yom Kippur, he would wear a gold plate that said, holy to the election Hebrew it would have gone in this direction, holy to the Lord. Now the horses are going to wear it. What's up with that? It is a picture of everything being so pure, so perfect, so clean, that everything will be as that high priest on that special day what was only a a uh, once-a-year achievement for one person, will now be routine. It will be the way everybody and everything is all the time. Keep going. What do we see in the next verse? And every pot in Jerusalem, Judah, shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. Your cookware will be like the golden bowl used in the temple. You know, there is a a sense in the New Testament of worship being all of life and all of life being worship. Well, here is a picture of that. That everything you do in this recreated reality will be as the worship in the temple once was that pure, that perfect, that glorious. All of it will be that way. Keep reading so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. Remember, at the time of Zacharias writing this, you didn't, you didn't give your offering directly to God. You took your offering to the priest. And the priest then made it and prepared it and offered it to God on your behalf. You know, the New Testament And it's particularly uh, captured in the uh, the, the, the Reformers, the Protestant Reformation in, in the 16th century, this idea of the priesthood of all believers, this idea that everyone can go to God. And today we go through Jesus Christ, our mediator. But here is a picture of the fact that we will one day be made so perfect and so pure and so clean that we will interact with God in a direct way. We can go to him and be uh, 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 as priests in the presence of God and there shall no longer be any traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Some uncertainty about how to translate that exactly. Uh, uh, probably what's going on there is this idea of, of, of impurities. There will no longer be anybody who, who cheats or, or uh, scams or, or corrupts things. And Not 100% clear what, exactly how to translate that. But this idea that it'll be absolute purity. You know, the, the, the king who is coming and came in Jesus, who offers protection from enemies foreign and domestic, who uh, was rejected and pierced and through his piercing was a saving king, a king whose piercing opened up a, a flood, a, a stream of purification, This king who is coming one day in a fearsome, undeniable, unmissable way, this king who will be victorious over all, is the one who will be worshipped for all of eternity by all people. By the way, not for nothing, our summer sermon series here at Shore Harvest is going to be on the topic of worship, corporate worship in the church. And so I'd encourage you to be as part of that as much as you can be this summer. You know, the gospel writers, all four of them, went to lengths to be sure that we knew that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Zechariah. That he came in on Palm Sunday on that donkey so that we would know this was talking about him. And so that we would know that all the rest of Zechariah's prophecies were talking about him. He is the one. Will be the king worshiped for all of eternity. We each Sunday get an opportunity to, to gear up for that, to practice for that, to prepare for that, to experience a little bit of that. It's one of many reasons, probably, you know, reason number 7222 why we should sing joyously and pray earnestly and come frequently so that we can experience this worship foretold here. King Jesus was foretold by Zechariah. And we have seen the fulfillment of many of these things, and we await with eager anticipation the fulfillment of all the rest of them. Let's pray. Jesus, show us yourself as king. Work in our stubborn hearts hearts that are not quick to bow the knee to anyone other than self, work in us that we would bow the knee to you. Work in our minds, which are, tend, which tend to think only of ourselves and our wants, and let us see you as the king, and let us uh, think about how we might serve you, and praise you, and glorify you. Work through this prophecy of Zechariah, And that seeing the partial fulfillment, we would have confidence in all the rest of the fulfillment. What an amazing picture of all that you have done, are doing, and one day will yet do. We pray this because you are king. Amen.